All right, Hebrews chapter 2. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If you're a guest with us today, you uh, haven't been here in some time, we're going through the book of Hebrews. We started it a couple of weeks ago. We have two sermons down in chapter 1. Uh, we're going to just take Hebrews and we'll just take the whole year going through this wonderful book, picking it up now in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there, <clears throat> verse 1. This is what the preacher writes. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Join me as we pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, as you look down on us, your church gathered, those that can't be here watching, and those that don't care, Drifting. We don't want to be drifters, Lord. We want you to help us. God, I pray that what I preach today would be right from your word, that your spirit would use it for good, that you would guide my thoughts and words so that every word be, would be a right representation of your word. And Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you will take it and and place it into the hearts of people that the Son of God, that Jesus might be glorified. And so help us this very moment. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, the song says, we have already And it's true, we, we have, the church, we have survived a lot. And with all of its faults, with all of its failures, with all of its weaknesses, with all of its struggles, the church of the Lord Jesus still stands. A Christian church here in the United States of America. In the 1700s, we survived humanism and Slavery and civil war in the 1800s, Marxism and communism in the 1900s. Now in the 21st century, secularization, as, as hard as just beating against the door of the church, we still stand. <clears throat> A lot of outside threats breathing down on the church right now. But all of those outside threats, even with their own dangers, and as bad as they are, they don't hold a candle to the unseen, almost unfelt danger 
of drifting. You know what you got to do to drift? Nothing. What I'm talking about is this passive, this, this, this nonchalance of allowing the cultural river to say that, that, that this society were in a cultural river, allowing the cultural river to take us wherever it wants. Now, if it's true, if, if, if life is a river, then, then your little life is a canoe placed in that river. Al Mola says we have two paddles in that canoe. One hand, we have orthodoxy, that's what we believe. In the other hand, we have obedience, that's how we live. And if we don't use both paddles, you end up going in a circle as the river just takes you where it wants. A lot of us sitting in this room, we like that one paddle theology. I like it. I like to study it. I like to think about it. I like to systematize. Maybe you want to have a, a good and robust and deep theology, and that is a really good thing to have, but if that's all you have, you end up paddling in a circle. You drift down the river. On the other hand, if you have just the other paddle, the one of doing right, having good character, making sure you're nice to people, that there's you know, a good sense about you, that you are someone that is respectable, you have obedience down. If you're not careful, you have, you'll either fall off on uninformed legalism or worse, have this sort of unschooled niceness. Niceness can feel so right. I mean, who doesn't like somebody that's nice? If you're not careful, you end up, though, paddling in a circle, a nice circle, no doubt, but paddling in a circle as you drift. And what the preacher's doing here in chapter 2, he's telling us, he's even commanding us to put your hand on one oar and put the other hand on another oar and row with all of your might, fighting drifting away from the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. So far in the little book, chapter 1, we just did two sermons on it. I had a friend that did 11, 11 sermons on chapter 1. So far in this little book, uh, the preacher has displayed the majesty of Christ. He's given us the power of the gospel, and that power of the gospel that guards our hearts against any distraction that would deflect our gaze off Jesus. And today, what I want to do, the time we have together, it won't be long, what I want to do here is take this passage and alert you to the inherent danger of drifting. Him right into it, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God that I love. It's a struggle that we all have. And what I hope is <clears throat> that you will walk away today I want you to walk out of here convinced and motivated that you, in your own life, you're sitting in your own little canoe, you will take both oars and row with all of your might. By God's grace, let's say it like this, by God's grace, let's fight the drift.
If we're going to do that, what does the preacher tell us to do? That's where we go to the Bible. Let's see, what does he say? What does the author of Hebrews tell us to do? Well, before we go too far into this sermon, let's get the first one right, and that is, number one, we are to fixate on Christ. Fixate on Christ. Join me there in the Bible. You see the very first word, and a bell ought to have gone off in your head, therefore. You see that word? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention. That word, therefore, is having us look back. So we're trying to go forward to chapter 2, but before we do, the preacher pauses and the transition word, therefore. You see that? Now you got to look back at chapter 1, and he tells us why we must pay much closer attention. He's pointing us back in chapter 1 to the superiority of Christ as a sure and steady anchor for our souls. Just read chapter 1. There's not, any, there's not one command in chapter 1. There's only information in chapter 1. It is designed to convince the early church, the early Christian believers, that Christ is better. Right, you could just outline it. If you missed the last two weeks, here's a quick outline of chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2 <clears throat> shows us these, the prophetic supremacy of Christ. Verses 1 and 2, the prophetic supremacy of Christ. Verse 3, you have the Levitical supremacy of Christ, that is the, the priesthood of Christ. Verses 4 through 14, you have the angelic supremacy of Christ. Jesus is better than the angels. You back up to verses 2 and 3. There you have the cosmic supremacy of Christ. He is cre creator and sustainer of all things. And all of that combined together gives us this gospel efficacy. You know the word efficacy, the efficacious nature of the gospel, the ability, the, the power of the gospel, gospel power. Now, let's get, this, let's get this one right. The very first link in our chain of orthodoxy, or if you want to use the, the analogy we've been using, the, the, the wood that our ore of orthodoxy is made of is gospel. We need to be clear on the gospel. It pains me to know that there are lots of churches that would call themselves Bible-believing churches, even gospel-preaching churches. You go and listen to their sermons, and I, I did last Sunday. I was so frustrated when I went home, I only got to preach one time, so I just walked around with my iPad watching sermons. That's what a frustrated preacher does. And, and so many sermons out of churches that I know are theologically conservative never get to the gospel. When we say the gospel, what do we mean by the gospel? Let me give it to you in a brief outline. <clears throat> you hear it every week. The Bible teaches that God is a holy creator who has created all of us in his image, every one of us, and created you. The reason you have dignity, the reason that we have sanctity of life, Genesis 1, God created humans in his image. That image, however, Genesis 2, that image has been disfigured by sin. You want to know the theological word? It's total depravity. That is to say that we have sinned in such a way that sin has affected every part of us. Our minds, our hearts, our souls, everything is affected by sin. Our decisions affected by sin. That sin, is, that sin is a cosmic crime. It's not just it's made us far away from God. It has separated. It has made us enemies of God. That we now are not just far away from God. We are enemies of God. God punishes his enemies. He punishes those that commit crimes against him. Sin is not just making a mistake. It is an actual crime against God. God is a judge, a holy judge. And therefore, all of us fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. 
That's what we deserve. And yet, justice is not all God is. He is also love. The Bible teaches that. that God is love. That he loved the world, that he gave his only son, John 3, 16. That son is Jesus. Jesus being fully God, but also fully man. He had to be a man to save men and women. Men and women are the ones who sinned, and Jesus' perfect life is in our place. He is a substitute. He lived the life we were supposed to live. Jesus did that. A fully righteous life. It is a life earned. He earned righteousness. It's important because at the cross, there he goes to the cross. The cross, we understand it's a Christian symbol, but that cross hasn't always been a Christian symbol. It became a Christian symbol when Jesus was put on it. That symbol was one of judgment, and there God judged our sin by punishing Jesus, and Jesus gives us His righteousness. So that's the information of the gospel. How then do you, if you're not a Christian, do you appropriate? How do you get that? The Bible teaches you don't, not by going to church ten times, maybe you then become a Christian, or being a good person, all of those things are wonderful. The way you become a Christian is putting your faith you say, I am a sinner in need of that Savior, and you believe that Jesus died for you. That's the Christian gospel. That's what it means to come from not being a Christian to being a Christian. And then your life is lived in such a way there are these distinctives. And we've got to be careful with those. I mean, religious observance, going to church, church attendance, moral effort, humanitarian benevolence, political involvement, social action, those are great things. They are not the gospel. Though they can't become a substitute for the gospel. Maybe the most tragic category. We got them here at Hicker Grove. Maybe the most tragic category of people in existence are those who have joined a church heard the Word of God, know that it's true, but are not willing to radically surrender your life to Christ. We, we all, every one of us here, we all know people like this. People that have, that have claimed to be converted and yet there's, there's nothing. They're, just, they're drifting like a dead fish. No, no effort, no life, no, no, no direction spiritually, no urgency, no vigilance, no, no passion, no fixing their eyes on Jesus. And the result isn't that, you're, um, that your life stands still. You hear people say, I'm going nowhere. The result isn't that you, your life stands still. The result is drifting. How then? How do, how do you fight that? How do you fixate on Jesus? I think it's good for us to see, it's good for us to see, here's one way, you need to see him taking your sin. John Bunyan wrote about that, you, taking, taking that the, the burden you're carrying, that Jesus comes and takes that off of your back. It, it's good for you to, to visualize, maybe you just need to visualize Jesus on the cross. See him on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, sword in his side, hear him say, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hear the words, it is finished. Understand the cost of our sin. It's good for you as a, as a Christian to envision his resurrection. I mean, the resurrection is why we quit 
worshiping on Saturday and started worshiping on a Sunday because Sunday is the day God raised him from the dead. It is the day we, we rejoice. It's good for you to envision the resurrection. It's good for some of you sitting here. Uh, you, you should think on the love that, that God has for you, the love of God, the, the in, unthinkable, insurmountable love of a, think of the most perfect father that you know, 10 billion times that love he has for his children is the love that God has for you in Christ. You need to think of, you need to dwell, you know what would be good for some of you? To dwell on the grace of God found in Jesus. Because you know what you can do? You can think on the sin that you've committed, the sinner that you were, maybe something you did this past weekend. You can think on that. I'm, I'm asking you to take your eyes off of that and think about the grace of God that washes sins away, that restores you, that purchased you. Think on, you know what you should do? You read the Old Testament, you should rejoice in the mercy of God. I'm going through the Old Testament right now, my uh, devotion. There's a lot of killing in the Old Testament. It's going to pick up. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, get to Judges. Everybody's dying in Judges. A whole lot of killing in Judges. And you know what you ought to do when you read that? You ought to be reminded of the new covenant that although my sins deserve instant punishment, the mercy of God saved me and prevented me from dying until I could put my faith in Jesus. And the mercy of God is he's taken away all of that judgment. You ought to, you ought to rejoice in mercy you ought to pray for help. God, help me. You ought to ask God to move in your life and take away some of this that's just burdened you so You ought to today, today, commit to live your life for Christ. By God's grace, let's fight the drift. We do that by fixating on Jesus. Let me give you a second thing that I think you'll see it in verse 1. Here's the second way we fight. Number 2. We get serious about discipleship. Discipleship. The ascending Lord Jesus said to his followers, go make disciples of all nations. Discipleship. Go with me back to verse 1. You see the phrase, don't you? Therefore, look at it with me. Therefore, we must, here comes the command, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift. Read the book of Hebrews in one sitting Take about an hour and a half. If you read it closely, you'll find five major warnings in the book of Hebrews. Here, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, here is the very first warning in Hebrews. It's an emphatic. It is a command. We must pay attention. We must pay much closer attention to the message. I'm paying attention. What does it mean to pay attention? Does it mean just you... You take notes in church and you have it there. Paying attention. What, what's the force of uh, that word? It means, um, it means you applying your mind to the information you've heard. This means uh, you, you bending your will to the perfect word of God. This is a yielding of your soul to the word of God. Here is you taking the gospel message and applying that message into your heart. This is you placing your affections, that you start loving the gospel so much. This is you bringing the whole self into conformity to Jesus Christ. Look, if you're bored with it, 
you might not be a Christian. If you take the gospel lightly, if you treat sin casually, if you approach being a Christian nonchalantly, then you are drifting into a shipwreck. You see, this passage here, verse 1, is, is a call. This is a call to take seriously being a disciple. What do I mean when I, when I say that? Well, let's start with evangelism, winning people to Christ. This ought to include word-based evangelism, not hucksterism, not salesmanship. We're not closing a deal, trying to convince somebody, hey, if you'll just pray this prayer, you're going to get saved. What we talk about word-based evangelism means we preach the word, point to Jesus, the Spirit moves, and people are changed from being dead in sin to being alive in Christ. Word-based evangelism. We ought to have Christ-centered worship where it's not showmanship. It is men and women leading a congregation as we sing together, lifting up the name of Christ. There ought to be life-giving fellowship, not a hollow friendship. People at church, you're afraid, are going to talk about you. Instead, you got brothers and sisters in Christ who are investing and in love. You want the best for you. This is a call, verse 1. This is the call of Christianity. Paying close attention, not letting it pass through you. You remember the old phrase, some of you have been going to church a long time. Remember when preachers used to describe people, somebody that's, I mean, you know they're a sinner, no good, everybody knows they're no good, and you might say of that person, he's going to bust hell wide open. Y'all know that phrase? You hear that phrase in pretty strong language. Someone that's going to hell is going to bust hell wide open. I'm not exactly sure the visual on that or what that means. But the truth of the matter is that most people are not going to bust hell wide open. Most people will gently drift there without ever knowing it. And the preacher says, you need to pay much closer attention to the depth and the power and the texture Grab a hold of the message we've heard, who Jesus is. You see, genuine discipleship draws us close. I think part of it is, is just, I mean, just coming to church. The very basics of Christianity is, is, is gathering together with the body of Christ on a Sunday morning. Now, COVID and snow have, you know, for two years messed us up. And I think on the other side, when we finally get over it, uh, there'll be a different church of people that want to be there. Not only that, I think you ought to be in a group, um, we used to call them Sunday school, I think you ought to be in a community group where you have a group of folks that are actually yours. You don't have to be a close friend with everybody in the community group, but you have some people that you identify with, you're meeting with regularly, and inside that group, we ought to have a, a small group of one or two or three people, maybe four that are insiders, that can pray for you, that you can share things with, somebody that's investing into your life. There ought to be a personal worship where you're open up. I mean, think about how luxurious it is to have a copy of the Bible you can read for years. How many Bibles you got at your home? Or right there on your phone. You just push a button and there it is. Personal worship. Well, it ought to be humble. I ought to be focusing at home 
faithful at home so the people you live with are not surprised if somebody says nice, something nice about you. It means being humble and, and, and public and focused. I guess I'm saying focus your life to living to the glory of God. Look, church, by God's grace, let's, let's fight the drift, fixating on Jesus, getting serious about discipleship. Let me give you a third thing to consider. I'm squeezing verse one. I'm going to squeeze it one more time. Number three. We need to embrace real accountability. I'm sure where I get it. It's at the end of verse 1. It's the idea of, of drifting. I know that accountability is part of discipleship, but I want to set it over here because I think, we've, I think we've sort of neglected it for too long. Let me show where I get it in verse 1. <clears throat> Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. Drift away. That little drift, that phrase drift away is a nautical idea. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. You have to go outside into ancient Greek to see how it is used. It is used, the idea is if you live on a lake or by the seashore or on a river, the idea is a boat tied up at the dock or at anchor. Seemingly secure. The people inside feel secure. They stay in the boat. They're going to relax here. The sun feels good on their face. And the, the gentle rocking of the boat lulls the occupants in the boat to sleep. That same gentle rocking has enough motion that it unties the note and the rope that is tied to the anchor or the dock comes loose. The occupants are still asleep inside. They don't know what has happened. And, and now the boat is unintentionally and carelessly and dangerously floating down the river. You see, drifting happens so imperceptibly, we very rarely see it in ourselves. Part of why God has given us a church, congregation, Part of why we gather, it certainly is collectively to lift up the name of Christ, but part of it has to do with brothers and sisters. God has given us each other so that, so that we can speak plainly and clearly into one another's lives. Look, you need more. Thank God for the ushers and greeters, friendly people, and you're coming in, it's good to have folks that are greeting each other and being friendly to one another, and it's good that people around you are friendly, but you need more than that. You need people in your, you need a brother or sister in Christ that loves you so much that, that, that won't let you ease off into sin before sin ever rises to the level of church discipline when we have to put somebody out of the church, before it ever gets to that level, you know what? It could have been handled. It could have been checked by accountability. Somebody close. I have a group of men. I get a text every day from a group of men. And I send a text every single day, a group of men. Not to mention just the pastors. I mean, men that are not beholden to me that are able to hold me accountable. And if, 
The, the idea is if, if, if one brother starts to slip, you see that there's something in his life. He's not being consistent. You're going to speak into his life to quickly and, and gently get him moored back up to the dock. Let's, by God's grace, let's fight the drift. Let's fixate on Christ and let's get serious about discipleship. Let's, let's embrace real you need somebody in your life? Embrace real accountability. I'll give you one last one. Let's take verses 2, 3, and 4. I've, I've sort of held them back here because it is one thought. Here's the last point. Number four, we need to rejoice in the greatness of the gospel. One of the major tones and themes of being a Christian ought to be that the joy of the Lord is our strength, that the gospel is such a joyful thing and grace-filled thing because we go from Slavery to freedom. It is a celebratory thing. It's why we have celebratory worship. Now, I want you to see verses 2, 3, and 4. They go together. Let's read them and um, see the argument that the preacher is making here. Verse 2. Just keep looking at verses 2, 3, and 4. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. It was at first declared, it, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. What is the preacher doing here? The preacher is giving us, he's making a case. It, there's a little bit of logic here. He's, he's making an argument that goes from lesser to greater. That's the argument, from lesser to greater. Um, it, here's an illustration. If you do 50 miles an hour and a 35 mile an hour zone and you're caught, you're going to get a ticket. Now, if you got a ticket doing 50 in a 35 mile an hour zone, how much greater will it be if you're doing 100 miles an hour and a 35 mile an hour zone? You might get put in jail. And the idea, do you see what he's doing here? The, the idea is, now you look at it, let's walk through it. Verse 2, if the message declared by angels, that message, uh, Paul says in Galatians 3, that's the Ten Commandments. He also, uh, Stephen says this in Acts chapter 7 as he's making his sermon, talking about, this is talking about the Ten Commandments. If breaking the Ten Commandments, if you break the, ten, if you break the law, that message from angels, if that received a just retribution, then how bad will it be? How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the answer is, you can't. I mean, do you see his point? Let me put it in a way we can understand. As bad as breaking the Ten Commandments is, missing or neglecting or drifting from the gospel is worse. And to prove it, verse 3 and 4, to prove it, he crescendos with this greatness of the gospel. Now look how he lines it out, verses 3 and 4. Look who's given witness to the gospel. Let me read it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Here it comes. It was declared at first by the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus, his life, his 
preaching, his example, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension. Here is one witness, the Lord Jesus. Okay, look at the second witness in verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. Who are those who heard, who were with Jesus, who were eyewitnesses. Here's, here's the apostolic authority. Here are the apostles. Here are those that were with Jesus from his baptism until his crucifixion and resurrection. They saw it all. These are faithful men. They handed this down and given us a Bible. So you have the Lord Jesus. You have the apostles. Now look in verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders, various miracles. So, so think about the preaching of Jesus and the accompaniment of miracles. Think about, think about the apostles Peter and Paul in Acts and how the church was started. Think about how the miracles were there to give authority to the message when the gospel was preached. So now you have the Lord Jesus, you have the apostles, you have God the Father, and then at the very end, verse 4, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This is, this is where history has been taking all of the Bible, bringing us to a gospel that is displayed by our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and preached with the authority by the apostles, and now has been given to us for our joyful salvation. And the preacher says, how will we escape If we neglect such a great salvation, instead, brothers and sisters, let's rejoice in it. Let's thank God for it. Let's relish what he has done for us in Jesus. And by God's grace, let's fight the drift. Let's put our eyes. I want you today to fixate on Jesus. Maybe even in a little bit when we have our last worship song, we get serious about discipleship. Find a way that you can embrace real accountability. Let's spend our lives rejoicing in our great salvation. Today I'd like to close with a word of prayer, and as I do, I'm just going to invite you to bow your head and think with me just for a moment. After I pray, we'll sing a song of worship. It can be a time for you to respond and come and pray. Come and pray with the pastor. I want to ask you a question. Are you drifting? Are you, maybe you feel it in yourself. And today is a corrective. And today you want to just have a pastor pray with you or you want to come to the front and maybe just pray by yourself and, and say, Lord, I, I know I have. I've been drifting. Maybe you heard this message today and you realize not only am I drifting, I have not been converted. I believe all this stuff. I've just not, nothing has changed. Maybe you need to come and let's just pray with you and explain and talk about what does it mean to give your life to Christ. Maybe, uh, maybe you were genuinely converted, but there's been some significant neglect. You just haven't been walking with the Lord and th that conviction, you know you were converted because you're convicted today and, and you just need to you need to come and repent of those sins and just ask God to help you. If you maybe you've just been bored. 
truthfully, I mean, reading the Bible is boring, going to church is boring, and you realize that is a real sin. Maybe you've got one, one sin you can't shake. It's just been on you, and it feels you've just been defeated. And you need somebody to pray with you, pray for you, just want to come and pray at the altar. Maybe, maybe none of this, maybe what yours is, you have a pain. You've been through some sort of abuse or you've been hurt terribly or someone close to you. You've just not been able to shake the pain. Needing somebody to pray with you, pray for you, so that we can walk out of here rejoicing in this great salvation. Today when we sing, if you'd like to come forward and pray or have someone pray with you, please do that. God, thank you. Thank you for the word that you've given us. Thank you for a church that loves the Bible, loves to sing. Father, I pray you help us. Find us faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing together.